Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Gary Steingart, whose latest novel is Lake Success. There are four previous books, The Russian Debutante's Handbook, Absurdistan, Super Sad, True Love Story, and Memoir, Little Failure. This book, Lake Success, is one of the first books I've seen that deals with the election of 2016 and its immediate aftermath. Mm -hmm. Was it just that you wanted to take a bus ride or was it a journalistic exercise? What prompted you to get on a bus in Mm -hmm. June 2016? The idea I had was that I had a hedge fund guy falling apart. You know, his fund is being investigated by the SEC. His um, wife doesn't love him. His kid is autistic. Uh, Nothing is the way he plans. So he says, the heck with it. Because he's being investigated by the SEC, he has to get rid of his credit cards and not leave a trace. So he gets a little bit of money and he gets on a Greyhound bus. But you got on a Greyhound bus. I got on a Greyhound bus in June 2016. Well, to to track his journey. You know, I'm. Okay, so you knew it was a novel at that point. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. No, I mean, I'm not not a very imaginative kind of guy, even though I'm a fiction writer. So if I'm going to experience something, I really have to do it myself. And practically everything in that book did happen to me, except for, well, I couldn't find any crack. Barry finds a crack rock, but as hard as I tried, crack is so outmoded, I just couldn't get my hands on any. Let's go back a little bit further because you just said that by the time you got on the bus and your character Barry Cohen got on the bus, you'd already figured out about his wife, Mm -hmm. about his hedge fund, about the SEC, about the autistic child. So let's go back a Mm -hmm. bit. All right, you finish Little Failure. And you're beginning to search around for another idea. So the next idea would be a hedge fund guy. Well, yeah. And, and I think the reason for that is I, I spent half the year in Manhattan and I looked around. There was nobody else left. All my friends are gone. They're all in, you know, uh, Berlin or Eagle Rock or Abu Dhabi or whatever and, or, or the Mid-Hudson Valley where I spend the rest of the year. And the only people left were either people in finance or the people who loved them or the people who worked in, you know, ancillary roles supporting finance one way or another. So I said, all right, I'm going to write about who's left. You know, if I'm going to do a book that's at least partly set in New York, I'm going to write about who's left. So I started investigating hedge fund people, and then I spent about three years hanging out with them, getting to know them, seeing their ups and downs. There were many, many downs because in 2017, the hedge fund industry began to really tank. So the sort of melancholy that I brought to the book, I think, was almost echoed in what happened. You know, Barry's losing money left and right, and then everybody I was following began to lose money left and right. So when you were writing it, suddenly the world was doing the same thing. I know, and I love it when that happens. You're like, okay. There's... <laughs> you spent three years, and at that point, you had only a vague idea of what you were going to do. Yeah. In fact, at first, I thought it would be a woman, you know, and it would be said all over the world. It was a very different kind of book. And uh, first of all, there aren't that many women who are, you know, high up in hedge funds, portfolio managers and stuff. Many of them are in 
investor relations or other kind of client-facing, as they would say, capacities. And the few women I did meet were too good at what they did to be Barry Cohen, you know, to be a character in my book. And they were actually quite competent. They didn't have this testosterone-driven need to succeed and take huge risks and blow up all the time. So I thought, all right, I'm going to do, it's going to be a male character. And then there were certainly many, many candidates for, for Barry Cohen-dom. And at that point, you began to investigate who this guy might be. By this point, you kind of figured that you were going to have to have the SEC in yeah. there because you have a plot. Yeah, 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 to have a plot. And I also didn't want, you know, there's some great, there's so much that's been written that's great or televised that's been great about hedge funds, billions, for example, where they show the inner workings of a hedge fund. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to focus on the character and his relationship with his family and his relationship with himself. And the best way to do that was to isolate him from all his money and throw him on a Greyhound bus, probably our least you know, exemplary form of travel and to send them hurtling across the country. Before he goes, you also have to find a wife for him. Yeah. And you decided to make the wife the daughter of Indian immigrants. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I'll tell you, you know, all my other books were about immigrants in one way or another, or Russian immigrants, which is what I am, Soviet immigrants. So I decided that this would be the first book where the main character wouldn't be an immigrant. Uh, he's Jewish, though, you know, baby steps, still Jewish. I didn't want to give up on the immigrant experience, so I threw Seema the role of, of the immigrant, and that's his wife. And then when you're doing that, what prompted you to bring in the autistic son? Well, a lot of people I know have autistic kids, or I think a few people I met in hedge funds are themselves on the spectrum, the more Aspergerian side of it. Um, so and I've always had a kind of just affinity for people on the spectrum. I grew up not knowing social cues. I was an immigrant, couldn't speak the language. And I think now that I look back, I, I would say a lot of my friends, the sort of ne'er-do-wells I hung out with exhibited, you know, I'm, I don't want to retro-diagnose them, but there were certainly many symptoms of, of what you would consider to be a, a autistic behavior. I just still feel a great kinship. The, the great highlight of the last couple of years was meeting Temple Grand and hanging out with her. You know, I just, her mind worked in a more efficient way than mine, but I, I admired everything about it. When I was growing up, as a teenager, I had a friend who seemed strange to, mm -hmm. you know, a good guy, but everybody saw him as a little strange. Yeah. And not too long ago, many, many years later, I ran into his brother who said we would have diagnosed mm -hmm. him on the spectrum. And suddenly, all of that behavior, which we thought odd, it suddenly wasn't odd it anymore. It wasn't odd at all, no. And I, you know, I think it's, this is a better time to be autistic than any <laughs> other time in history because. Uh, people know what it is and are exploring it and not just in this kind of, you know, fictionalized Rain Man way. I mean, there's, you know, there's so much to be learned. Every autistic person is so different. And the diagnostic tools are much better so that, I mean, now they think like 2.5 percent of the population is autistic and a lot higher for boys. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if we ended up with 5 percent of the male population on the autistic spectrum and something similar for women. So it's, you know, look, uh, we're just learning so much. And Learning about it in researching this book was wonderful, and I just felt, you know, it wasn't, it didn't feel like this is some kind of disorder. I mean, it is known as a kind of communication disorder. It really just felt like it was a very different way of being and thinking. Gary Steingart, before we go on to the journey itself, let's talk a little about the hedge fund people. You give Barry Cohen an obsession with expensive watches, yeah. and is this your obsession? A little bit. Mine aren't as expensive as Barry's. I wrote a piece about this for The New Yorker. During the election, when I started realizing that uh, things might not go so hot, 
I uh, needed to take my mind off things. And first of all, I love looking at a mechanical watch, the second hand of it, and following that around. It, it calms me down. My, just like Barry's therapist tells him, if you're ever anxious, look at your watch. And, and I, I find that, you know, as somebody who suffers from anxiety, I find it very helpful. But also, you know, watches, it's just another... I mean, for some people, it's baseball statistics or whatever. It's just this endless minutia that you can learn about. There's all these websites and forums. There's actually secret watch societies that meet in New York and other major cities. I'm sure there's many in California. And you, you know, you have to know somebody has to take you. And then all these watch nerds get together and they throw their watches down on the table and everybody looks at each other's watch. And talk about spectrum. I mean, there's something, you know, incredibly, uh, and, and Barry as well, you know, he's, he's somebody yeah. who's practiced his so-called friend move so you can get money out of investors, but he really doesn't know how to read social cues that well either. And watches really calm him down as much as they calm me down. Are all the watches in the book real? Yeah, of course. Yeah, every watch. I mean, good Lord, I have a database of a gazillion watches in my mind. You know, and, and so those $100,000 watches that you know, he describes, yeah. takes apart, all of those, those are all real those watches. Those are all real. And I mean, and, and you know, in the, in the high end of watches, 100000 isn't even that much money. <laughs> I mean, because of the rise of tech and finance, there's, you know, there's million-dollar watches. The most expensive watch that ever sold was uh, Paul Newman's Rolex that just sold for 17.8, if I'm not mistaken, million dollars. Um, that's an expensive Rolex. In a couple of interviews that you've given about this book, you do talk about how the hedge fund people, these, we're talking 0.1% or 0.01%. We're talking about the rich people who benefited from the latest round of tax cuts. And Mm -hmm. if there is the next Mm -hmm. round, these people live in a somewhat different world than we're in. You talk to them and what you noted in these interviews is that they're not happy. No, no, no they're not happy. And, and, and this is the bizarre part of it is that these laws keep, are designed to basically transfer wealth from everyone to them. You know, I mean, when you look at it, that's, that's really down the line, especially when you think about all the things that are going to get cut, you know, social services, social security. Um, I'm sure they're going to go after Obamacare. So all the stuff that gets cut, where does it go? You know, well, it goes to them. It goes to people who live off carried interest loopholes and stuff like that. And, and that's what I found, on the one hand, kind of pleasing, but on the other hand, kind of showing the stupidity of it all is that we, are, we have built a society where our, the happiness of people who need the money is curtailed because they're lacking it, you know, they're lacking resources. But the people who receive all the money that's being taken away from these people aren't happy either. It's like this incredible loop of unhappiness uh, because the people who benefit from these laws feel so estranged from the rest of society. They, they have this moated effect. They're moated not just from society. They're often moated from their wives and children as well. And so, you know, I, 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 there were so few people I met who really enjoyed what they did. Maybe if the few who saw it as an intellectual exercise and who had, had PhDs in math or physics and now found themselves in this field. And you also indicated in one of those interviews that Someone asked you, well, are they okay with the fact that they're perceived as the bad guys? And you said, no, they want to be loved. On the other hand, they do things that make them the bad guys. They want to be loved. And that's something I heard so many times about one hedge funder talking about another saying, I'm like, well, why is Jeffrey like this? And they would say, well, his mom never loved him, you know? (laughs) And I heard this over and over again. I thought, is this a collection of men without any motherly love who are now chasing after billions of dollars that they think will make them happy and in the end really don't? And that's the character of Barry, too. And you also said that 
you discover the wives are better educated and smarter than the husbands. Yeah. yeah, they often know a lot more about the world. They're often better credentialed, as they say. You know, they have law, medicine degrees. Um, um, some of them worked in finance, but you know, there's many found out there's, there's a glass ceiling for sure. There's only as far as they could go. Whereas their husbands, who all they do is blow up and lose hundreds of million dollars, millions of dollars, keep getting more money for investment because they're you know these white males who. <laughs> Every time they blow up, somebody will say, well, this time they really learned their lesson. And Barry has similar situations. And, of course, they never do. They never do. You know, there's a book about investors called Where Are the Customers' Yachts? In other words, where are the investors' yachts? You know, the hedge funder will make more than, than their investors and for, in many, many cases, in most cases, you know. And, and they will keep a percentage of what you invest. Two percent will be kept with them no matter how well or how poorly they do. So it's a win-win situation for them, and it's a very likely a lose situation for you. And many of them told me, they said, don't invest in my fund. You know, that's the advice I can give you. Just put it in low-cost index funds, you know, put it in Vanguard. Don't think about it twice. Don't give it to me. I, I like you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you also mentioned, and it's in the book a little bit, is that, you know, they go to their clubs. The food isn't good. Yeah. Well, that's what really bothered me. I mean, there's a scene in the book where Barry meets an architect, and they're standing in a house in Greenwich, Connecticut, or somewhere in Connecticut, and and he says, wow, your job must be hard. And he says, no, I only cater to bankers. They have the same four houses, the same four wives, the same four cars, you know. So it's easy. I, I, know, I know exactly what to do. And the monotony of it is what really struck me. You know, you'll enter a gigantic house with zero character in it, which seems to be a perfect stand-in for the person inhabiting it. Gary Steingart, you decided, of course, to get things moving, put them on the bus, see the world, and also give yourself an opportunity He's got drunks falling asleep on his shoulder, and you took a greyhound from Port Authority. Yeah, and like I said, almost everything happened uh, that happened to Barry happened to me. One of the first things that happened is I was taking a really nighttime bus to Baltimore from New York, which is Barry's first stop and mine, and the driver fell asleep. I mean, they work these drivers to death, I'm sure. And he fell asleep, and everyone started yelling, Sir, wake up, wake up. So you want to sit as far away from the bathroom as possible for obvious reasons, and you want to sit as close to the driver as possible in case, you know, he checks out. Uh, There's a character named Brooklyn, uh, mm-hmm. a street-smart African-American girl. Did you meet someone like that? Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the thing was, you meet great people on, on the hound, as they call it. I mean, you really get a nice snapshot of America. And, and Brooklyn was interesting in that she contrasted with these white supremacists who were on the next round of the bus. And this is for real. This is also for real. And the character Brooklyn, you know, and, and the person modeled, you know. Um, She was on the way up. She was getting a degree. She was getting educated. She was incredibly well-spoken. And then you had these white supremacists who were on the way down. You know, they were not well-spoken. They were not articulate. They were not going to college. In fact, at one point, we had passed Grambling State University, which is a historically black college. And there were all these African-American students. And this drove them up the wall. And they said, he said, well, they got their colleges, and one day we'll have our colleges. You know? And I was like, have you not heard of Dartmouth? Uh, you know? <laughs> it, was, it was so bizarre. In one of those interviews, again, I'd like to follow up on this. You wound up in a bar, mm-hmm. and you wound up talking with people, and it occurred to you as they were talking that Trump might win. Yeah, and this was not even just an isolated experience. Everyone was talking about Trump winning. So, you know, you leave New York where everybody's like, oh, yeah, this is is a done deal. You know, we're all looking at 538 and Hillary's going to win. But 
good Lord. I mean, <laughs> you know, everyone on this trip thought otherwise, or so many people thought otherwise and would say that to me, you know, they, and, and, and be very precise about it and say, I'm just going to lose Pennsylvania. And I was like, come on. Okay, Ohio, I could see, but Pennsylvania, there, there's no way in hell. And I don't want to create this idea that, oh, there's the real America and that's between the coast because we're, we're as real as anyone else and there's a lot of us. Uh, but it does help to get out. You know, it does help to get on the bus or get on some form of mobility and, and just see what's out there because it's a very different country from the one that you find looking out, you know, a window in Berkeley or New York. Was that the most surprising thing that you heard? Everything was surprising. I mean, you know, look, I, <laughs> there were people talking about crucifying Muslims and Jews, those white guys on the bus. Barry gets off and I got up to him. There was a New Testament coloring book that he buys. That's real. Yeah. You don't have to make anything up when you take a greyhound across the country. Every single aspect of it is, you know, one thing after another. You know, some guy will fake a heart attack so he can get off closer to his home. Every single second. And then people talk about, you know, Barry knows that people talk about where they went to jail, the way people talk about where they went to law school on the Acela, you know. And there were a lot of people who had clearly just left correctional institutions or mental institutions or some kind of institution. And um, they were very <laughs> voluble about it. They talked about it. You have Barry get rid of all his credit cards so he can't be traced, but he was going to be traced. Mm -hmm. uh, why'd you do that? Well, I wanted to make him as poor as possible. I wanted to see what, what would be left if you isolated him from his wealth. I mean, this is the big question with these people is, you know, I mean, the wealth doesn't, as I said, I doubt really makes him happy. The, the wealth is a kind of giant scorecard that tells him where it is. But being poor in this country is terrifying, especially compared to other, you know, European countries, let's say, or Canada. I mean, we have a very minor social net that's being chipped away at second by second. So Barry ends up, I mean, without giving too much away, but he ends up with nothing. And he ends up in the precarious situation that a huge part of our population finds themselves in. And so I really wanted to do that. I wanted to see how resourceful he would be or not be. I wanted to just put him out there and, and strip him of everything. Well, when you say you wanted to see how resourceful he was going to be, given the fact that he's a fictional character, what exactly does that mean? I'm not a hedge fund person, but I do live in Manhattan. I mean, and, and to a certain extent, the values of the culture, of finance culture and maybe tech culture in, in your part of the world, they get transmuted to everybody. So you start thinking in a kind of privileged way, I think, you know. So when I started thinking, what would a fictional Barry do in this situation? In many ways, I thought, what would, what would the real Gary do in this situation? Even though I, I never had hundreds of millions of dollars to my name, but I've also, well, when we came to this country, we were pretty poor. But I don't know, since my early 30s, I haven't been poor. I haven't been super wealthy, but, you know, I'm used to all the privileges and all the Ubers and whatnot. And so, you know, but what happens when there's nothing, when it's just you, when you can't even, I mean, at one point, there's not even enough money for the Greyhound ticket. What do you do then? You have Gary visit. <laughs> you have Barry visit. <laughs> <laughs> Notice that Barry and Gary are just separated by one letter. So. Yes. You have Barry visit an old girlfriend yeah. from college. And that's sort of his grail is to find out who she is and maybe try to rekindle something. Was that also fiction or sure. was that just? Sure, it was fiction. But I mean, I think many people who have settled into a life where they feel like, well, I'm not loved by my wife. I don't understand my kids. And here the lack of understanding is also facilitated by the kids' uh, autism. You know, and you think, well, 
if I turn back time, was there a time when things seemed good? And, and, and for many people, it's college. You know, it was the first attempt at defining yourself away from your family. And for him, he went to Princeton. For him, Princeton was kind of an eye-opener, and he met his first girlfriend there, and she was smart and beautiful and sophisticated. And she taught him a bunch of things and made him the berry. So he, he wants to track her down, and he figures out she's in El Paso, Texas. So the journey's sort of, you know, A, he's running away from his wife in the SEC, but he's also uh, trying to hunt down his ex-girlfriends, and college girlfriends. Without giving too much away, there's a point where he goes back. He winds up back. And we won't discuss that mm-hmm. part of it because that's the story. Mm-hmm. But you do something interesting there, mm-hmm. which is that he's on his trip, and then suddenly we move ahead into the future, and we never see mm-hmm. that moment mm-hmm. where he goes back or how he's found yeah. or anything. Yeah. Why? You know, there's a point in the book where uh, he meets a former protege of his who now lives in Atlanta. His name is Jeff Park. You know, they get into a fight, and Jeff says, you know, I know who I am. You, you, and, Jeff, and, and Barry says, well, I don't know who I am, which is why I'm on this bus journey. I'm trying to find myself. And, and Jeff sa- says, yeah, and one day you'll tell people, I was on a journey by bus. So the bus journey becomes this almost like another talking point that he can use with other investors or fellow hedgies. It's a trip, you know. So many of these hedge fund guys will go to, you know, go to Uzbekistan, bake the first bread with the local baker in Bukhara or Samarkand or something. I mean, there's, they're, they, they're so desperate for connection because their lives are so sterile. And, and so I think that Barry kind of begins to think, okay, this trip's over, I'm back, and now it's just another talking point. And that's why you you decided to remove that. Just to remove the actual trip back. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting because he's avoiding his yeah. assistant, Sandy, the entire time. Yeah. And she's going to get him, but yeah. we never see how or why. We yeah. only know that suddenly <laughs> he's back in New York and he's dealing with everything. Yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said for a mission. I try to keep my books below 350 pages at all times. So I'm always <laughs> thinking, what can be cut? And sometimes when you cut something, I think you let the reader do his or her work on it, and that creates something better. I hope. That's No Country for Old Men. Yes, yeah, No Country too. for Old Men, sure. I mean, many books. Yeah. Barry, his wife, Seema, his neighbors, Arturo and Juliana, none of them are people that are particularly, I don't know, nice, mm-hmm. though Seema's probably the nicest of them. Were you thinking at all about the fact that your characters would be so unlovable or could be? Or was that never even a concern because you were telling a story? I mean, I think this is not a lovable world. And I think it doesn't produce people who are, you know, the, the un- I mean, we're not talking about the underdog here. We're talking about people who are well-moneyed and have very little compassion for others. But I will say that uh, there's a few who are, I mean, certainly once he gets on the bus, he meets people who are, who are quite likable. Juliana, the neighbor who actually helps That's Sima and, and, and has a little kid who plays with a kid named Arturo who plays with Shiva, which is Sima's son who is on the spectrum. They pop out, I think, because they have no motivation. They're just, and she's a doctor, uh, Juliana, and the two of them, her and her son, are like a strange mm, vision of almost the middle class the way it used to be when people dreamed of, well, maybe I'll be the ophthalmologist in my town. People didn't dream of billions. They dreamt simply of being somebody important, but somebody who also worked with the community, you know, and she and that's what she does. 
So there are a few shoots here and there. And certainly when he gets to El Paso, he sees people who are professors who are helping first-generation kids go to college. And that's what I saw, too. And so those were some of the most happy people I've met were people who were solidly in the middle class, but who also had jobs where they could see the actual outcome of their work and not just numbers on a screen that only benefited themselves. One issue for me in reading the book was that I kept thinking, am I going to root for Barry mm. or not? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, I don't really know because it's never quite clear. I mean, we get an inkling at the end of the book, which I won't give away, mm -hmm. but it's never quite clear if he's actually learning from his experience. Well, do we actually learn from our experiences? What I've always disliked is this very Hollywood idea of redemption, you know, and a very American, maybe very Christian idea, obviously you know, that through good works, et cetera, you will become a different person. It happens every once in a while, but it happens very rarely. In fact, when it does happen, we celebrate the Siddharthas of the world uh, with great glee and, and joy. But, you know, what I wanted Barry to have was a shot at redemption, and he meets several people along the way who can offer it to him, and does he know how to take advantage of it? To me, that's the tragicomic aspect of it all, is when people think that they can change, but just become a slightly different iteration of exactly who they were before. The character you mentioned before, Jeff Park, very interesting character because he walked away. He's still got his money, but he's kind of appalled at what he was mm -hmm. and at Barry. Mm -hmm. Well, I've met people like that. I mean, really? the people do escape. You know, this is uh, this gilded cage does have a, a trap door you can open and disappear from. I mean. Barry makes fun of Jeff a little bit because he says, oh, he only has a net worth of $10, 15000000 million, which, again, by the standards of his industry, are, are very, very, it's a very small amount. But he's actually one of the happier characters in the book. He does what he wants to do. He actually enjoys reading books. He reads 100 books a year, and, and he you know, will drop everything just to finish that, that quota, and he enjoys his life. Uh, he lives close to his parents. He's an immigrant from Korea, and his parents were, were Korean immigrants, so he has a kind of filial duty. He lives in Atlanta. He probably would prefer to live in New York, but he lives in Atlanta. He takes care of his parents. So he has a complete life, you know, the kind of life that Barry uh, wants. So he becomes, in some ways, you know, Saul Bell used to call them uh, reality instructors, and, and that's sort of what, what he becomes. In writing the book, I mean, I, I ask this question to different writers depending upon what the book is, but writing a book, doing the research, frequently changes the writer because mm -hmm. you can't live in that world yeah. for X amount of time without yeah. something in you changing. Yeah. Well, a couple of things change. I mean, one thing is because it's such a transactional world that you begin to see New York, Manhattan, and uh, I don't know if I could say the same thing about the Bay Area, but perhaps you begin to see the transactional nature of everything and not just money and rent, et cetera, but relationships too. You know, everybody wants something from someone else. Everything is... And also, you know, when when I could see how... You know, a hedge funder would talk about people. He would he would say, "Oh well, yeah, I sort of my accountant. He's one of those two million a year guys. You know, everything is quantified. And him, that family, that's like a five million dollar family. You know, and, and as much as you don't want to become that person, and I've been out of this world for you know half a year, and I feel like the effects are slowly wearing off. But you kind of walk around the streets of New York and you see how the sausage is made, and you know how it is, and and you can't help but see it." you know, trickle down to the kids. I mean, there was a, I visited a school once where somebody had written, you know, we took our Porsche to my yacht. This is like a six-year-old kid writing that, you know, and, and that's, 
that's what it is. You know, it, it trickles down to everyone. And at the end, I became almost kind of allergic to money because I saw, I mean, I'm not exactly, you know, <laughs> trying to make more and more money. I wouldn't be writing fiction if I, you know, did. But I saw that I don't really need anything more than I have. I mean, I have to make sure that I have a roof over my head and my kid goes to school and all that. But beyond that, you know, I'm pretty happy and I, I, I just don't want any more money, <laughs> which is weird. I mean, the whole country is premised on the idea that we're always squirreling away from more money and fighting and the whole economy is so robust because of that. But good Lord, you know, just make it stop. From the political perspective, uh, you finished this book, I guess, in sometime in 2017. Yeah. And looking back, I guess being a little prescient about awful things is not yeah. necessarily a good thing to be. No. But do you see any reason for optimism? Do you think people are growing from what you're experiencing? <laughs> Boy, this is the kind of growth I, I, I'd rather avoid. I'd rather, I'd rather stay short. I don't know. I mean, yeah, people are people are learning things. You know, people are learning that we are essentially a racist country, that that never ended racist, um, homophobic, anti-Semitic. We thought that wasn't really that much of an issue, but it's still around uh, uh, against disabled people. I mean, you name it, you know, uh, Trump embodies everything. He is, uh, <laughs> as Walt Whitman would say, he, he embodies, he contains multitudes, but all those multitudes suck, you know. And we learned that he's not alone, that there's, you know, probably 30% of the voting population, probably more, 30, over a third of the population loves what he's doing, wants more even if they don't benefit from, you know, even if sometimes they get hurt by his policies. It doesn't matter. They're, they're quite happy with it. There's a scene in the book where the white supremacists on the bus, the bus is mostly people of color, and yet they're ranting about, you know, and, and they're poor themselves. And, and Barry thinks they'd rather suffer financial loss to make somebody else feel worse. You know, they're paying a kind of tax to make sure that they're not at the very bottom of the social totem pole. And that was not merely Barry's observation. I would assume it was Gary's too. Oh, of course. No, it was very obvious, and it's obvious. Whenever I see people like that and they talk about it, it's very clear that they're not really concerned about, you know, jobs going to China. <laughs> they're happy that finally there's an outlet for their racism, you know. And that's a very important thing. Once Trump came down and gave the Mexican Sarepa speech, well, that opened up a window. But once he became president, you know, that opened up the door. And what I was seeing on the bus in 2016 was the very first, I think, manifestation of people being able to get up. People would always be racist and would say it amongst themselves, but people getting up and actually saying it to a bus full of people that they're denigrating was something that felt very new. As you were writing the book, did you know, even in June, that the book would have to encompass what happened at the end, but you couldn't know it in June? I couldn't know it, but at some point I began to worry after all the people started telling me that I should... That the election was not going to go the way I thought it would. I mean, the book is going to contain some Trump, obviously, because it's 2016, but it's going to be more of a sideshow, the way we thought it would be a sideshow. You know, the GOP has gone off the rails, nominated this moron, you know. But at a certain point, I realized that there was a very good chance that this book would have to delve into Trump a lot more. And my editor said, please, don't put that much Trump where everyone's allergic to him. You know, don't use the T word more than six times. And I was like, all right, how about 18 times? <laughs> we came up with like maybe 12 times. And this is a big question facing fiction writers right now. You know, do you write about him? He permeates all aspects of our lives. He's in our Twitter feed, he's in our, our conversations. He intrudes upon our personal relationships, um, often with People and their parents and their families don't get along because of him. Do you want to, you know, read more about him in, in fiction, you know? But 
how do you not write about the most cataclysmic events in recent American history? You made a decision toward the end of the book to extend further beyond the time frame mm -hmm. that actually exists in physical reality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that would have been a struggle in some sense because you don't know mm -hmm. what the future is going to bring. Well, I've written dystopian fiction like Super Sad True Love Story before, so I've, I've delved into and so much of that book has come true even though it was written in 2010. But there are some things that we can definitely count on. I mean, the planet's going to be warm and inhospitable to larger and larger sections of the human population, not to mention the poor animals and sea creatures, etc. I mean, this is going to be, we're walking into a terrifying scenario. Uh, it'll be terrifying from an environmental standpoint, but then also from a political standpoint. We're seeing really apocalyptic rumblings. And, you know, of course, we're all looking toward the midterms and thinking, well, this is going to be a big decider. But I don't know. These forces are very strong. We live in a uh, a country that's not a direct democracy. We have what Homer Simpson called the electrical college, and we all know who that favors. Not to mention, you know, the Supreme Court and local legislatures, voter suppression. I mean, it's a giant booyah base of crap. Gary Steingart, changing the subject, I went to IMDb to see if there was anything there, and there was. It said that Love Story is becoming a mini-series? Not really. Well, Love Story was moving toward a series. And as I essentially said, it's very hard to do because so much of the book has happened. So what seemed like prophecy is now just commentary, you know. So uh, we're trying to retool it, is what I'm <laughs> saying. We're trying to make things a lot worse than they are. <laughs> so you're still, at, you're still at the very, very just talking yeah, stages. Yeah, just talking stages, yeah. Any interest in any of the other books? Absolutely. I can't quite... I'm not allowed to say what, but yes, things are moving forward on, on all and fronts. And what about Lake Success? Yeah, yeah especially uh, in particular. Success. Yeah, in particular, I think. And, and that has, I think, a good, good chance as far as these things go. And have you begun working on your next book? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, uh, Ten pages. Uh, all I know is I want to set it upstate. You know, so I do spend half the year in this both very idyllic but also very politically mixed area. It's a very purple zone, so you have a lot of... Trump supporters for sure, and then you have Bard College nearby, so it's this incredible mix that I feel is very good for, for fiction. I noticed you've been writing a lot of essays, too. Do you see yourself moving into essays? I've always written essays. I've always written, I think I've written maybe half a dozen for The New Yorker over the years and, and for other publications, too. No, I love, look, you know, essays for me, they really help me focus on information, and I, almost all my books are about something, you know, and they're not... I always think that the most important things are always, yes, love, family, relationships, uh, parents, children, all the great things that have, you know, that have really been the center of literature since, since literature was a thing. But I also try to, you know, Super Sad was about tech. Like Success, obviously, is about finance. Absurdistan was about oil politics. So there's always, I always try to learn something new. And, that, and the way to do that is to do a lot of essays. And as an immigrant looking at what's happening yeah. now. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> And particularly the New York Jewish immigrant community, where do they seem to stand from what you've seen? Well, the non-Russian Jewish immigrant community, I think, is pretty horrified, with some exceptions, but pretty horrified by what's going on, uh, at least the people I know. 
the Russian Jewish community, the Soviet, post-Soviet Jewish community, seems to like Trump, especially the older generations. I, my generation has all these great Facebook pages, you know, Soviet immigrants against Trump and all kinds of stuff like that. But uh, the older generation love him. I mean, he's, you know, they see him falsely as a symbol of strength, you know, and not to mention old prejudices which he stirs up. So, yeah, there's a, there's a reason why Trump's America and Russia are so allied. I think there's a, a lot of commonality. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.